You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So a few years back, I got a ring in the mail. It wasn't a proposal, indecent or otherwise, from a fan. It wasn't a cock ring or an engagement ring. It was a doorbell. Ring, the home security company now owned by Amazon, briefly an advertiser on the podcast, sent me and Terry one of their products, their most popular product, which is basically a high-tech doorbell that's also a camera. So if you have a ring doorbell and someone rings your doorbell, it calls your phone and you can see video of whoever's outside your door. And there's a speaker on it too, so you can talk to that person outside your door. The idea, as I understood it at the time, was that someone might ring your doorbell because they wanted to rob your house, but they'd want to make sure you weren't home first before breaking down your door. And if you didn't have a ring, they'd know you weren't home and break in. But if you did have a ring, you could speak to the robber on your front porch and the robber would go rob someone else's house because they would think you were at home because you were speaking to them through your ring. But the Ring doorbell camera phone video thingy, the actual physical device you put outside your door on your door jam, it's so clunky and distinctive and undoorbell-like in appearance that I thought it would have the opposite effect. If you were talking to someone via your Ring instead of opening the door or shouting through the door, you were basically letting all those polite doorbell ringing robbers out there know you weren't actually at home. So I had my doubts. But I took the ring home, and I showed it to Terry, and we actually wound up talking about installing it. But not on our front door. We talked about installing it in our bedroom, on the wall, across from the bed. So if one of us was doing something, and we thought the other one might want to know about it, or watch, or maybe listen, or offer some words of encouragement, we could ring each other. Basically, we looked at our ring and saw a pervertible. Pervertibles, according to kinkly.com, are common household objects that have been corrupted or perverted for a sexual use that differs from their designed usage. But man, am I glad now that we didn't pervert our ring. Because it turns out ring is a nightmare where privacy is concerned. The Electronic Freedom Foundation describes ring as a perfect storm of privacy threats. The combination doorbell security camera records and transmits video straight to users' phones, the Electronic Freedom Foundation reports, also to Amazon's cloud, and often to the local police department. It's easy, as it turns out, ridiculously easy, too easy, for cops to get their hands and eyeballs on your Ring videos. Local police departments can just request video footage from all Ring devices in a given area, And the company turns it all over, no questions asked. Also, no warrant required, and videos are turned over without the permission of the users of the devices. There doesn't even have to be a crime, just a little suspicious activity in the area. And hackers have been able to break into the devices and spy on people, even yell at people in their own homes, terrorize them in some instances. Ring employees have been fired for improperly accessing and sharing videos. And Ring gave permission to workers in Ukraine Not all roads lead to Ukraine, but a whole lot of them seem to these days. But Ring gave permission to workers in Ukraine, of all places, to view Ring videos for, quote-unquote, research purposes. Reading all about the privacy nightmare that is Ring, I am glad we didn't install one in our bedroom. Not that they're arresting gay men for having sex in the privacy of our own homes, yet, or not again, I should say. 
1988, four cops in a small town in Texas burst into the home of John Lawrence and found Lawrence in bed with Tyron Garner. One cop said the two men were engaged in anal intercourse. Another said they were engaged in oral intercourse. And who knows? Maybe they were doing both at once. The men were arrested, charged with violating Texas's anti-sodomy statute in a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court, which ruled in 2003 in Lawrence v. Texas that sodomy laws were an unconstitutional violation of our right to privacy, the rights of gays and straights alike. Because straight people, oral sex when you do it, that's sodomy. Anal sex when you do it, also sodomy. All non-procreative sexual activity which would include straight sex in the missionary position with the lights off if you happen to be using birth control, all of that counts as sodomy. So the decision in Lawrence v. Texas didn't just protect the rights of gay people, protected the rights of straight people too, because we are all sodomites, even if only some of us are limber enough sodomites to do anal and oral at the same time. Anyway, Ring is rethinking its approach to privacy and security, according to TechCrunch, but all I could think as I read Romain Dillard's interview with Ring founder Jamie Siminoff is, well, Terry and I can't be the only ones out there who had this idea. We can't be the only ones who saw how easily pervertible Ring doorbells are. And I imagine the overlap between my listeners and people who saw those doorbells and thought, huh, that overlap's probably pretty significant. So I just wanted to say, maybe take that Ring thing out of your bedroom and put it Well, not on your front porch where it ostensibly belongs, but in the trash where it actually belongs. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum edition of the show, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as much show and no ads, I speak with author and YouTube host Jillian Keenan about spanking as a fetish for adults and discipline for children. She approves of the former, disapproves of the latter. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm a single female calling from Maryland. My relationship question was on how to deal with a guy that refuses to stand up for themselves. I met a guy in April of last year. So we've been dating for about nine months now. And we recently made our relationship exclusive. As far as the relationship, it's great. He's a super nice guy and a great dad to his two young children. Now, the problem is the children's mother. He was in an eight-year relationship with her, and they broke up about two years ago, but she is very much so dependent upon him, which is not a problem. I can understand the growing pains that might last after a long-term relationship. The problem is, is when she doesn't get her way, she acts completely batshit crazy and do something completely absurd and in my book unforgivable but he allows it and just let things go back to normal example this past december the guy and i went out of town for a small small weekend getaway this was not the first time we've done so but i think it may have been the first time he told her the children's mother, that he was going out of town with his girlfriend. Everything was good up until we got there. She began calling and calling and just creating arguments for no reason. And then once he started ignoring her, she then sent him a picture of his social security number and started applying for multiple different credit cards, just trying to ruin his credit. 
She also left the children at school and refused to pick them up. So he had to have a family member go get them. Of course, when we got back, he did nothing. It was just business as usual. He said he asked her why she was acting crazy and she didn't know and she just apologized. I keep asking him, why would she ever stop doing crazy things to him if he does nothing about it? Now, granted, maybe he doesn't want to see the mother of his children in any legal trouble. I can get that. But just a few weeks after this incident, she had a flat tire in front of her house. He runs to her rescue and changes the tire. She wasn't on the side of the road with the children in the car or anything like that. She was at home. I feel like maybe he should have told her to call AAA, what she pays for her and the children to have. Now, Dan, am I wrong? It seems like he's rewarding bad behavior and not standing up for himself. And frankly, I just can't sit around and watch a nice guy get beat up on. And it really sucks because I really like him. You need to say to him, I like you. I can't put up with this, which is your ex basically taking you hostage at will and throwing these fits or applying for these credit cards. And then you come running. He's essentially rewarding her hostage taking behavior, behavior that if he took her to court, if he sued for custody, could cost her custody of these kids. And then they wouldn't be as easily taken hostage as they are now. But if your boyfriend's going to do that, he has to confront the prospect of being the full-time custodial parent, which may not be a responsibility that he wants or could handle or that you want him to take on, which makes the hostage-taking, particularly if she's going to use the kids as, a, as pawns, potentially effective over the long term. And then it's you who has to decide whether or not you're willing to put up with this. Because so long as he lets this work, so long as this is a successful strategy for her, throwing these kinds of fits, demanding his attention, abandoning the children and forcing him to take his focus off of you on your weekend away and turn his focus to arranging childcare for his kids, so long as this works, it's going to continue just as you observed. But to get it to stop, he's going to have to go nuclear. And is he in a position to do that? Is he in a position to call in the cops? Is he in a position to sue for custody, to document what's been going on and, and sue for custody and in a sense threaten to take the kids hostage himself or threaten to take the kids on himself full time? And could you support him in that? And short of that, I don't see how until the kids are older, he could possibly extricate himself from this terrible situation because he is involved with his ex and he's going to stay involved with his ex. There's no getting away from her because they have small children together. So you can encourage him to stand up to her. It's probably not going to work. She's probably going to continue to behave in this way. Then you can encourage him to take the legal steps that are available to him. Or you're going to have to tell him, give me a call in 10 years when you're not so tied up with this toxic woman because I can't take this. Hi, Dan. I'm a bisexual woman in my late 30s living in the Southwest. I've been married for five years and increasingly unhappy, but it was hard for me to articulate why. I heard a woman on your podcast talking about having a really nice and kind husband, but she felt lonely, especially when they moved away from their family and friends. 
you said perhaps they had outgrown the relationship. Their situation is almost exactly the same as mine. I played the clip for my husband, and after, we agreed to separate, as I think hearing our exact story from a stranger made it clear. We had also tried Polly as a Band-Aid. Fast forward to now, I have a wonderful 53-year-old boyfriend. My mom and brother are supportive of my life changes, but my dad said my separation is indicative of my shortcomings and my desire to find a perfect mate, whom I know does not exist. I was expecting worse from him, so this didn't shake me. My question is, when do I introduce my 53-year-old boyfriend to my family and how? I want him integrated into my life, but obviously my dad is conservative and judgmental. Help. That advice I'm always giving to queer kids with conservative or bigoted religious parents doesn't just apply to queer kids. Your only leverage over your parents as an adult is your presence. And if your parents can't treat you and your partner or partners with respect, don't make yourself present. Absent yourself. Use that leverage. You might want to give your father a little bit more time to adjust to the divorce or the separation, to the fact that you have a new partner, but be clear and direct with him about the fact that you do have a new partner. And in a way, it's his business because you want this person to feel like a member of the family if indeed it gets to that point. But in another way, it's none of your father's business who you're in relationship with. He doesn't have a veto. He doesn't get a vote. But when you're ready to introduce him to your mother, to your brother, and when you're ready to introduce him to your father, do so. And if your father is an asshole to you about him or to him about him, tell your father you're not going to be able to see him much going forward because this is the person that you're partnered with now and you demand from your family of origin, and that includes him, respect for the choices that you've made. Sounds like your divorce was amicable. You and your husband, your soon-to-be ex-husband or your already ex-husband, parted ways. You recognized that you'd grown apart. You didn't blow it all up. You didn't hang in there until it was completely awful or a shit show. You didn't engineer it. You didn't slam your hand down on the self-destruct button by having an affair. You just recognized that you'd outgrown each other and parted. And you found a new partner. Maybe hearing from your ex-husband might help your father if you want to help your father. Your ex-husband isn't obligated to speak with your father and your father has no right to hear from him. And your ex-husband doesn't have to give your father permission to accept your new boyfriend. That's something you have a right to expect that you should demand and that if you don't get, you shouldn't see your father much anymore going forward until he knocks this shit the fuck off. Hi, Dan. Straightish, just flirty female from England here. Two weeks ago, my boyfriend of two years broke up with me. Absolute tore me apart. It came out of nowhere and I found it really hard to accept for a while. Um, we felt like we were soulmates. He said he still loves me, but he's not in love with me anymore. I've been doing a lot of soul searching, trying to feel better in myself and find who I am, what I enjoy, how best to deal with my mental health problems. I've been feeling better thanks to therapy, um, but I still miss him and love him so much. Tomorrow we're supposed to be exchanging our belongings and I'm terrified that will be the last time we see each other. I've lost the love of my life and my best friend. The problem I'm trying to get over now is the sex. We've had such a powerful connection and our sex life was amazing on both sides. By far the best sex either of us has ever had. 
My pussy belongs to him and I want to keep it that way. Sex was a massive part of our relationship and has become a massive part of my life. I know that he's got fuck buddies that he can go back to when he needs a fix, but I don't want any other dick near me. My question is, how do I bring up the idea of casual sex with him? I'm imagining myself asking him tomorrow and him grabbing me, kissing me deeply and whisking me off to his bedroom, but I know that's very unlikely. Is it wrong to want to keep the best sex of my life if he feels like we can't be in a relationship anymore? How do I go about this? Please help, Dan. I'm heartbroken, horny, and I miss him, but I can't even bring myself to masturbate because he did it the best. It's not wrong to want to hold on to the best sex you've ever had in your life. It's perfectly understandable that you would want to hold on to or keep having the best sex you've ever had in your life, and you'd want to keep his dick in your life and in your pussy, but it wouldn't be helpful, and it wouldn't be healing, and it wouldn't be constructive. You ask how you could have a casual sexual relationship with this guy. Well, listen to your call. Listen to the sound of your voice. It's not possible for you to have casual sex with this guy. There would be nothing casual about it from your end. Even if he agreed to it, even if he agreed to be your fuck buddy, even if you rolled this out and he kissed you passionately and whisked you off your feet, he's let you know. He, he dumped you. He's let you know that he doesn't feel as strongly for you as you feel for him. And every time he fucked you at your request, every single time he fucked you, it would just keep you in a place where you were most likely hoping against hope. You were living with irrational hope that perhaps if you continue to hammer away at each other, or if you keep his dick in your pussy, he will fall back in love with you. And that is highly, highly unlikely to happen. I would go so far as to say that is not going to happen. And so as much as you'd like to keep this great sex in your life and him in your life, and as hard as it is for you to imagine at this stage of your grief about the end of this relationship that you could ever have as powerful a sexual connection with anyone else, it wouldn't be good for you to keep fucking this guy because it's going to delay the day when you find somebody else that you have as powerful or more powerful a sexual connection with. You need to grieve this relationship. It's over. It's dead. And you don't want to fuck the corpse. I'm sorry to put it that way, but you really don't want to fuck the corpse because fucking the corpse, whether you're talking about a dead relationship or you're talking about a dead relative, is going to complicate the grieving process and most likely extend it. You don't want to do that. You don't want to make this mistake. And if you asked him, I would hope that he was sensitive enough. I hope I would hope that he cared about you enough not to fuck you, knowing that it wouldn't be good for you, knowing that it would just result in you living in false hope about a potential future with him again, or you two falling in love with each other again. So if by some chance he's a listener too, dude, don't fuck her. Even if she asks, even if you want to, don't fuck her. Listen, my heart goes out to you. This just happened and you are reeling. We've all been there. There's something about that moment, you know, rejection is just so negating. It's so traumatizing, really, this kind of rejection, particularly when you are in love with someone and you feel like you're each other's soulmates. And then you learn that that was or that became a one-sided feeling that 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 injury is deep and that grief is profoundly felt. But it is 
so common and look around, just look around your social circle. You have friends who went through this, reach out to them, ask them to be there for you, ask them to listen to you cry, ask them to take you out and distract you, but then look at their lives now because invariably they have healed from this exact same kind of pain, this exact same injury and moved on and are in new relationships and no longer wish to be with the person who broke their hearts way back when. They see now, we usually see later after somebody has dumped us, that even if it wasn't the thing we wanted at the time, it was still the right thing for us too. But it takes time to get there, to gain that kind of perspective. And it takes friends to help you get there. Reach out to your friends for their help and support. Do not reach out to this guy for his dick. Hi, Dan. I'm a 20-something cis-straight male who recently moved to a semi-rural conservative area in the mid-Atlantic. I started exploring the dating scene in my new area using several dating apps, and I wasn't having much luck connecting with people. After a couple of attempts, I finally met a girl who I felt an instant strong mutual connection with, and we decided to exclusively date. And it's been going great. We both really enjoy each other's company and share similar interests, but have only been dating for a month. On to the problem. We didn't really discuss religion in detail when we first started dating. My new girlfriend was homeschooled in a conservative family and raised Christian, so she claims to be a bad Christian, meaning she doesn't go to church regularly and also engages in certain things the Bible says are not okay, like premarital sex. She told me that when we have sex, she wants it and enjoys it and wants to keep having it, but in the back of her head, she thinks it's wrong, but God will forgive her. This took me as a bit of a surprise, so I started probing her on other issues that are often debated with religious people. I learned that she's pro-life and thinks that abortion should be illegal. This I'm a little apprehensive about, but it's not a deal breaker, as I can understand how someone could think that abortion is wrong. I'm very pro-choice. I don't think anyone should be able to tell a woman what she can or can't do with her body. And if abortion is illegal, people will just get them anyway, in a manner that's much less safe. I took this as an opportunity to have a discussion about abortion. And at the end, she conceded that abortions should be allowed for rape victims and instances where the mother's life was in danger, but we should put more emphasis on the use of contraceptives in schools. I considered this a good productive talk, and she demonstrated that she was receptive to other people's opinions. However, after more discussions, I started learning more opinions she had that bothered me even more. She thinks that marriage is biblical and sacred and should be between a man and a woman. She believes homosexuality is wrong, but that God also forgives and it's not necessarily a one-way ticket to hell. She has gay friends and has even attended gay weddings, but believes that gay marriage is wrong, although she is absolutely not the type to make us think about it publicly or let it come between her relationship with her and her friends. That said, uh, she said she was genuinely happy with her gay friend, for her gay friends who got married, and I believe her, uh, but this still really bugs me. I could poke holes in her argument all day about her relationship with the Bible and the hypocrisy of picking and choosing what rules you can follow, but I'm starting to wonder if that's the right thing to do. I'm pretty sure we can have more discussions where I bring facts and evidence to the table. Maybe it'll plant the seed where she starts to question everything she was taught in her sheltered upbringing and starts to see new things in a new light. But I'm seeing evidence of her changing her views at a level-headed discussion, or when we have a level-headed discussion about things. But I honestly feel bad about dating someone when I want to change certain things about them. She's such a great person. We get along so well. I could really say it's being together long term, but I feel like an asshole because I admit that I do want to change these things she believes. I don't know what to do, Dan. I see so much potential with this girl, but it's only been a month. Is it wrong of me to continue to date her while attempting to change the way she thinks about these issues? Or do you think that's just a fundamental incompatibility and I should cut bait and move on? So are you still seeing this girl? Yeah, I am technically. I mean, well, like nothing, nothing has happened since I've called you in terms of um, what is, you know, what I was calling you about. I've talked to some friends about it. 
I, you know, I called you and I've just been sort of mulling over the possibilities about what it is I'm going to do. You know, it's you, the, the, there's that saw that you shouldn't try to change people and there's that tourism that people don't change. But you're not talking about wanting to change who she is. If she's a fundamentally decent, kind, introspective person, that's what you're interacting with, those fundamental truths about her. All this shit about abortion and gay marriage, this is stuff that she was taught. These are lies that she was told. And sometimes we have the sense fucked into us by someone else. Sometimes, uh, you know, because you're dating somebody and they have a very different uh, opinion uh, about politics or religion, your desire for that person, your attraction to that person causes you to re-examine your beliefs. And sometimes when you re-examine your beliefs, you realize that those beliefs aren't your own, that they were handed to you and you sort of swallowed them without question. And if she was raised in a conservative home and was homeschooled, the odds that that happened are really high. Yeah, very, very high. And I mean, she's she's way more on the liberal spectrum than either of her parents are. Well, her dad's kind of liberal, but her mom is the one that she describes as a more typical close-minded conservative that I think, you know, she has, she's the one who taught her when she was homeschooled. She mm-hmm. had Christian studies when she was homeschooled. We, you know, talked a little bit about all of this and you know, I've tried to like broach the topic a little bit about, you know, giving you know, pl- sort of like planting the seed and hoping that she comes to her own uh, conclusions. But yeah, I just couldn't get past the, you know, just underlying feeling of guilt that I I felt like I was trying to change her, but uh, I wouldn't be trying if there wasn't a connection there. Right. And, and you're you not, know? you're not trying to change her. You're, you're helping her resolve some cognitive dissonance. And sometimes we do that with arguments. Sometimes we do that with Dick. There are all sorts of, (laughs) you know, approaches to recognizing uh, issues that, you know, what we believe is in conflict with something else that we believe. And, you know, she's Mm -hmm. going to gay weddings if she has gay friends, but she has been told by her mommy that gay people are sick and sinful and God hates us and is going to send us to hell. But also God is loving and forgiving and all this other bullshit. She has to work through that. And that's, I promise you, something she was probably already thinking about and wrestling with before you came along. You have just, by being present and engaging with her about these issues, externalized some internal arguments and conflicts. Mm-hmm. That's not you trying yeah. to change her. If you went to her and said, you know, if you don't vote for X, Y, and Z, I will not date you. <laughs> I would tell her to dump you. That's that, true. That, that's an asshole move. If you went to her and said, you can't, you know, if you were controlling in weird ways about beliefs or taste or food preferences, whatever, or if you told her that she had to lose 10 pounds in exactly one area or dye her hair a different color. <laughs> like if you were trying to change her in like weird, controlling, selfish ways, then you'd be the asshole. Right. But the ways in yeah. which you're trying to change her, if you peel it back, you're not really trying to change her. You're just helping her recognize that these things that she's been taught about the way the world works, about abortion, about gay people, about whatever is in conflict with her own worldviews, with her own sense of decency and fairness and justice. Mm -hmm. So you're doing God's work there with your dick. You're not doing something bad. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, I really, when I started to feel bad about it is when like, you know, we were talking about religion and she was, she said, is it a deal breaker that I'm Christian? 
And my response was, I don't know yet because it's just, it's uncharted territory for me. So I think like I've done a lot of reflecting on it. And I think if I'm unsuccessful in changing her, then I think it is a deal breaker. Like I can't see myself getting married to and having kids with somebody who believes those things. Mm -hmm. But I also can see it working out long-term if I am successful, but that just introduces, I guess, I don't know, a shitty frame of mind because like, what do I say? Cause, like, Cause then there's a deadline. Like if you don't come around on issue X, Y and issue Z by this date, we yeah, can't like how get much married. Of my time am I investing? Right. That's coercive, and, you know? Right. And I think rather than identifying some deadline and regarding this as, you know, there being some ticking clock in the background that could put pressure on her. That's, that's, that's not okay. You know, you can ag- yeah. agree to disagree with a romantic partner about an issue without, ceding any ground and keeping the mm. argument alive and, and continuing to engage and being respectful about it. You know, when you, right. when you had that conversation with her about abortion and she was finally able to say, well, if somebody's raped uh, or mm-hmm. a victim of incest or the life of the mother, well, maybe then. So she's already moved on that and she's doing yeah. what a lot of us who are gay want, you know, people who have moral qualms with same sex relationships to do. You know, you can think we're going to hell with the Jews and the yoga instructors and not discriminate against <laughs> us right now on earth. Like, you, right. you know, I'm fine if somebody's faith tradition teaches them that X, Y, Z are sinful and X, Y, Z people aren't saved. But how do you treat X, Y, Z people and how does your faith instruct you to treat X, Y, Z people right now on earth? And, you know, mm-hmm. if you're cruel and vicious and you want to see people pulled from their partner's bedsides during medical crises, during medical emergencies, uh, because they have the wrong genitals, then you're an <laughs> asshole and I wouldn't date you. Yeah. But if you can accept that, you know, someone is entitled to all the same rights that I'm entitled to, and yet I have this, like, uh, about it, but I'm not going to throw it in their face, well, then you're owning your own shit and keeping it to yourself and I think that's usually evidence that somebody is going to abandon that position in time. Right. She's already on the right track. Right. Okay. So, you know, even if she doesn't come around on, you know, whether gay people are going to hell or not by the time you want to marry her, I promise you that, you know, if she's moved and she already has on that issue and others, you could marry her in good conscience and then continue mm-hmm. to fuck more sense into her over the day. <laughs> And undo right, with well. your dick the damage done to her in a homeschooling program. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck, dude. <laughs> Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old cisgender female living in the Midwest with just a question for you about a situation. So I've been dating somebody for about a month now. Casually, we've gone out and done things and also just been hanging out at each other's apartments and just trying to sort through what I'm feeling with him. The first date, we did kiss, but then the second date after that, he said that he does typically take things slow in relationships um, when first starting to date. For me, I thought, okay, well, maybe we won't fuck tonight, but that'll be something that in the next couple of dates would happen. And after hanging out with him um, just right now, he kind of went on and told me that he doesn't have sex with people unless he knows that if they were to have a child, if that small chance of getting pregnant, um, he'd want to know that he could raise a baby with them and that he is 
anti-abortion and would want to know that somebody would have the child if that were to happen and that also he would need to be in a monogamous relationship. Is this something that I should be pursuing? It's not like I've had the track record of just going out and sleeping with everybody, but I do think that's an important piece of getting to know somebody and dating somebody. And also, I am pro-choice. I don't think anyone has a right to say what a woman should do with their body, and that part kind of made me upset. But we have had a lot of fun. I have known him for about 10 years now. But I just want to get your perspective. Is this a case of sexual incompatibility? Do you think this is something that since I've been monogamous in the past that it could be worth pursuing? It's not up to him what happens after you get pregnant if you two begin to have a sexual relationship and there's an unplanned pregnancy. A lot of different birth control techniques have their failure rates, including the pill, which is a tiny infinitesimally small failure rate, but does but it's not up to him. He's not in control at that moment. And he can't hold you to some agreement that he forced you to make before you guys began to have sex about what you would do if the worst happened and you got pregnant. If he wants some control over that situation, he should go get a fucking vasectomy or stick to oral until he is in a long-term committed monogamous relationship with someone who wants to have children with him. And until that time, if he's going to be sexually active in opposite sex relationships, an unplanned pregnancy is a known known. It's a known risk. And it is the woman's decision alone what to do about that unplanned pregnancy because it is her body. That's your position too. Your position and my position are the same. He shared with you his position. You should share with him yours. And I think you guys – at that moment, recognize that you have a fundamental incompatibility around choice and therefore you shouldn't be sex partners or romantic partners. And then you pull the plug. Then you end it. Don't fuck the guy. Don't fuck the guy who doesn't think women should get abortions if that guy hasn't already gotten a vasectomy himself. Hey, Dan. So I just need your advice I mean, sometimes I actually feel like maybe what I actually need here is like a kick in the pants, but um, I'm, I'm a gay black man. I've been seeing this guy for about three months now, and we just made it official that we're together. And um, the thing is, I'm really versatile when it comes to men. Maybe just a smidge more of a bottom than a top, but I do feel like I need both of these things in my life in order to be happy. He is a bottom, and we have an open relationship. You know, he knows that I have needs, and... uh He's comfortable with me, feeling them elsewhere. I haven't been with a guy who could, you know, really dominate me or taught me in a long time. And um, I, I'm free to go get with one, but I keep feeling as though, um, I don't know, maybe I should just be happy because this guy is great. And I, I almost feel like I love him, even though it's only been about four months that we've been seeing each other. Should I just be settling and moving on and being like, I'm going to be with this guy and let it go? or I feel like what I need could graduate from a single sexual encounter someday to an actual relationship. You know, I'm I'm very much into the whole sub-dom thing. And <laughs> I'm a pretty masculine guy, so I've only met like two guys who could dominate me, and they're both, you know, quite a bit older than me. I've never had the opportunity to be in a relationship with a guy who consistently dominate me, which, you know, feels like something I dream of, because even though I'm basically 30, it still hasn't happened. So... Should I just like shut up and be with this guy who's great and different than any guy I've ever been with 
and then get my kicks when I need them on the side? Or am I being dishonest with myself about my needs? There are two fixes when you're in a relationship with someone who can't meet a very specific and important to you sexual need, which is the relationship opens up and you can seek that outside the relationship or you go without. Not everybody gets everything they want out of every sexual relationship. Some people value monogamy and make monogamous commitments and that means they don't get to get dominated. That means they don't get to do anal. That means they don't get to do something because their partner, even if their partner is generally pretty GGG, good giving in game, their partner can't do anal or can't do BDSM or domsub or whatever it might be. And so the price of admission the person pays to be in that relationship is going without whatever that thing is. That's not the crisis you're facing. You're in an open relationship with someone that you have already developed really strong feelings for. And I think you might be in a bit of a preemptive panic about what it might mean to really fall seriously in love with this guy. And you might be sabotaging the relationship because there is something else that you want and have always wanted it and only gotten a couple of times, which was to be dominated in bed, to be topped in bed by somebody perhaps older, by somebody more dominant. And that's a relationship that you fantasize about having, not just a one-off with somebody who could dominate you and fuck you, but an ongoing connection with someone who could dominate and fuck you. And there's something about the relationship you have with your boyfriend now that you have concluded without discussing it with the boyfriend you have now that being in a loving, committed relationship and an open relationship with him precludes that kind of connection with someone else in the future. The only person who can tell you whether being in a loving, committed relationship with him precludes their partner having that kind of connection with somebody else in the future is your boyfriend. And you haven't had that conversation with him. So before you meltdown and panic, before you end this relationship preemptively, before you sabotage it, have that conversation with him. There are lots of different forms, uh, quote unquote, I'm doing a little bunny ears here, relationship with someone can take when you're partnered with someone else. You know, it doesn't have to be that the person who dominates you and tops you in this particular way that you really crave and need to be dominated and topped and having that in the context of an ongoing connection, that doesn't have to be your primary relationship. There are lots of people out there who have an ongoing connection with someone who meets a sexual need of theirs that their partner can't with their partner's consent and it's intense and intensely felt but it isn't Again, their primary relationship. It isn't a relationship that competes with their, you know, marriage or their the, the the connection they have with their spouse, but it is a relationship. So you can have him and your relationship with him, where you're primarily the top, which is a role that you enjoy with him, your verse. Uh, and if it's okay with him, if it's something he can wrap his head around, you could potentially have one-off encounters with other guys. Obviously, now you can have these one-off encounters with older, more dominant guys who can top you in the way you want to be topped. But if a guy comes along that you have a special connection with and you can get together with regularly to get that need met and your partner is okay with it or even turned on by the thought of it, well, then Yahtzee, you win. You're so worried right now that you might lose if you're honest with your partner about all of your needs that you're not allowing yourself to you know, play the fucking game and perhaps Yahtzee win it. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight married guy, married 10 years, longtime listener, Magnum subscriber. I have a variation on the sexual incompatibility question. Um, what does someone do when they're forced to accept that 
some of their favorite sex acts are just never going to happen again. Specifically, I'm talking about an exuberant blowjob and any kind of butt play, both two things that I love and both of which I've come to realize is just never going to happen. My wife and I used to enjoy both of those things together. Uh, the butt play has gone off the menu for medical reasons, which may or may not work themselves out. It's been over a year since we've had anything in that department. And I do want to make sure that this isn't just me trying to get in her butt. She genuinely did enjoy those things, too. And the exuberant blowjob, well, the exuberance really has never totally been there, but at least there was a willingness to try, and that has gone now, too. And uh, the PIV is just monotonous, and it's really starting to affect the way that I see her. I've, I've kind of stopped seeing her as a sexual object, which disturbs me, and I fight against it, but there it is. Um, I know that there's no easy solution to this problem, but when you're like 50 and you realize that you have to give up some of their, your favorite things in life, it's um, frustrating, to say the least. So what are the solutions? I could have an affair, which is not really practical. Um, I think most people that do that eventually get caught, and it would involve another person and complicate their life and mine. And I don't really even know, you know, I can't get on the apps for obvious reasons. My wife would never be okay. I, I mean, even if I could coerce permission from her, it wouldn't be genuine, and it would probably end my marriage anyway. We have kids. That's not really in the cards. That's not something I want to do. So the other possible solution I can think of is a sex worker, which is fraught with its own pitfalls. And um, I'm kind of tending towards that solution because my mind just so strongly rebels against this idea of never again, never an exuberant blowjob, never any butt play. And I'm just kind of stuck here and my marriage is withering on the vine. What do you think? Um, what do you think about those two options? Um, I mean, I've a good discreet sex worker, I think, could work out. But, you know, there's the whole legal side of it. And where would I even find one? Uh, anyway, what do you think? I'm not sure this exactly falls under the do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane header. Usually when I tell someone to do what they need to do to stay married and stay sane, they're in a loving relationship or a compatible relationship or a companionate marriage or a marriage that has devolved to a companionate state and there's no extricating themselves from the marriage without blowing up a lot of lives including the lives of their children and there's no sex or very little sex in the relationship and there's been no success when it has been addressed honestly and there's kind of this distance and this detente and sex and Sexual frustration becomes this topic that cannot be raised, too dangerous to address. And often in those circumstances, I tell people, well, do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane. Sometimes cheating is the least worst option for all involved, including the person being cheated on. Heads are exploding as people listen to me say something like that. But it's true. Sometimes to be cheated on and not abandoned is not optimal, not awesome, particularly if you find out about it. But the lesser of two evils, the disruption that divorce entails, the economic privation that often comes in its wake, sometimes the person you don't want to fuck, the spouse you don't want to fuck, fucking someone else, as galling as that might be to find out about after the fact, is, again, the least worst option. 
even for the person being cheated on. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of response calls to that one. But what do you do in your circumstance? Your wife can't have butt play anymore for quote unquote medical reasons. Like a lot of people in long-term relationships, she's not enthused about sucking your dick in a way that she used to be enthused about sucking your dick. You have two small children. Well, it's possible the tide has gone out. I think what you need to discuss with the wife is boredom. Maybe you get her Wednesday Martin's book on True, which addresses this issue at great length about boredom in long-term relationships. And it's possible that she's bored too, which is why she is less interested in sex. And is this boredom something that you can work on together? Well, it's only something you can work on together if your wife is still attracted to you sexually on some level. You know, we talk about couples and long-term relationships and marriages where there are children involved you know, trying to rediscover, you know, revive the sexual spark, trying to reconnect sexually, addressing boredom. And all of that rests on the assumption that both people do want to fuck each other uh, and are still attracted to each other. And we know from looking around, we know from our friends' relationships sometimes that people wind up partnered with, married to, having kids with folks they're really not that into. They're into the idea of being married to that person. They're into the idea of parenting with that person. They're not necessarily into that person sexually. So you need to have a conversation with your wife about boredom. You need a conversation with your wife about mixing it up. You need, And that conversation isn't a j'accuse. It's not pointing a finger at her and saying, I'm bored. It's going to her and saying, we're in a rut. I, I, I bet you're bored too. You can risk framing it like that, I think. Is there any way for us to shake things up, to make time for each other? Maybe it's about quality not quantity because you have two small children, the pressures of family life. Is there a way we can carve out a weekend every once in a while where we can have some alone time, enjoy each other, be intimate and also maybe be sexual and be excited about it, it being something we look forward to again. And maybe since anal's off the menu, there's other things that we can experiment with. Again, that assumes your wife is still into it or into it right now. Sometimes people really go into a kind of sexual hibernation when their children are young, particularly the full-time parent. And when the children are a little bit older, they emerge from that hibernation, ready to get fucked in the ass again, ready to give an enthusiastic blowjob again to their husband or maybe to somebody else while their husband watches. And that's exciting. There's lots of different ways that people in long-ass, long-ass, long-ass term relationships revive that spark. But none of that can happen if you can't communicate. And communication, everybody throws that word around in the sex and relationship advice racket, isn't just about praise. It isn't just about negotiations around particular sex acts. It's about being honest often and and speaking difficult truths to your partner about where you're at and how you're feeling about your sexual life and your sexual connection. You're not in a good place. You're in a place where you're contemplating cheating, finding outside sex partners, going to a sex worker. You could risk saying that. So that she understands how deep your dissatisfaction or your unhappiness or boredom goes. But when you say that, you may hear things back from her that are as difficult for you to hear as that was for her to hear. So brace yourself. Hi, Dan. My question is, is it's more of a research thing, actually. Uh, for the last two generations, at least, parents have been told, stop spanking your kids. All well and good. My My question that we were arguing about is, because of this, in young people, has the population of spanking fetishists gone down or up? I figured if anybody would know how to find out the answer to this, you would. 
Joining me to help tackle this question, joining me to help spank this question, Jillian Keenan, author of the terrific book, Sex with Shakespeare, which is a book about spanking fetishism and some really convincing takes on Shakespeare's plays being kinkier than we've already thought. She's also the host of the YouTube series, Kinking Out Loud. Hey, Jillian, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, it's been too long since I've had you on the show. I always love having you on the show. So uh, but there's really two issues I want to talk about before we get to the specific question. And the first is, you know, this this idea like spanking fetishes come from a play or fetishes always have some like sort of root cause. I usually use spanking as an example of how we just can't know, because when you talk to an individual spanking fetishist or a couple of them, one will tell you that they're into spanking because they were spanked as a kid. And there are these associations and it, and it like sort of morphed into a kink for them in childhood. And other people will say I wasn't spanked as a kid and I was fascinated by it. And so you really can't say – you really can't predict whether being spanked or not being spanked is at the root of somebody who's got a spanking fetish, their kink. Well, the truth is, Dan, I feel like I can answer ah. that question. Um, I'm strongly, strongly of the opinion that spanking fetishes are absolutely not caused by childhood trauma. Um, in fact, I'm releasing a video about why that's so just this week. I do realize that there are some spankos in the community who do attribute their paraphilias to childhood trauma, but uh, I'm hoping I can persuade them that that theory is not only a myth, but a really damaging one. Well, we're actually in agreement on that. I think kinks are randomly assigned, and I, you know, I pointed to some people to try to understand themselves will say, I have this kink because this happened to me as a child, and other people can turn around and say, I have this kink or fantasy because this this thing didn't happen to me as a child. And it just means you can't necessarily tag it to a childhood experience. Sometimes people will associate their adult kinks to some childhood trauma because it kind of makes a rough intuitive sense, but yeah. it's just random. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a lot of parallels to be drawn here between this myth and the now widely discredited ancient um, incorrect theory that homosexuality in males was caused by absent fathers and overbearing mothers. That's just not true either. And uh, neither is this theory of about trauma causing kink. You know what my uh, take on the overbearing mother absent father thing with gay kids was? It was a misreading that the gay kid was often uh, – the mother was more protective of the gay kid because the gay kid was being victimized sometimes by the father's judgment uh. and shame. And the father would withdraw because the kid was gay. It wasn't the father withdrawing that made the kid gay. The father could sense the kid was gay and was uncomfortable with it and that caused the mother to be more protective of that kid. That was certainly my experience growing up. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm of the opinion that childhood spankings – are more traumatic to children who are growing up with an emerging spanking fetish because, of course, they experience those assaults as not just physical violations but sexual violations as well. You have this interesting sort of – not role, but you've sort of made it your cause to advocate you know, as a public spanking fetish, as someone who's written very movingly and articulately about kink and about your uh, you know, fetish for spanking – you're very much opposed to corporal punishment, to adults hitting children, to parents spanking their children, and are very vocal about it. And I don't see a disconnect there, but some people do. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, it, it, you're absolutely right. Some people do think it, that there's a disconnect. Um, but it's just so obvious to me that the connection is extremely strong. Um, spanking is a sexual act, not just in my opinion, but also culturally, historically, and even biologically and physiologically. And when parents 
spank their children in that way. They're playing Russian roulette with their children's bodies and sexual identities. Um, like I said, I think childhood spankings are far less likely to be sexually traumatic for a uh, child who is not growing up with that emerging sexual identity. But for someone like me, who has been sexually obsessed with spankings from my very earliest memories, since I was three years old at least, uh, I experienced childhood spankings as sexual violations, and they mm. were extremely traumatic for me. Mm -hmm. So it's important for me, I think, to draw this connection to uh, protect other kids from the risk of going through what I went through. Okay. We've had two generations now of parents, maybe two, maybe three parents being encouraged not to spank their kids. Uh, my parents were spanked. I wasn't. They never hit us uh, growing up as, as children. Um, is there any research? Is this – I mean we're, we're, we've already gone on the record saying there's no causal relationship. So if there's no causal relationship between the sort of the cultural prevalence of spanking or its normativity – uh, in parent-child relationships uh, and the emergence of spanking fetishists, there's not going to be any data here, right? There's just going to be as many spanking fetishists as there ever were, whether or not it's commonplace for adults to spank their kids, right? But there's no data that we can draw on, is there? There's not a lot of data, and that makes sense to me. So far, a lot of existing data on the on the subject kind of looks at the BDSM tree in general. But as you know, Dan, the BDSM tree is a very uh, <laughs> complex and diverse place with a lot of different branches. Um, and so far, no one is really researching spanking fetishists specifically. But I will say this. Um, anecdotally, from what I've seen being in the community, and uh, my friends absolutely agree, of course, the um, as the cultural acceptance of child abuse starts to wane, uh, of course, that's not having an effect on the number of people with spanking fetishes, since there's no causal link there. But it is having an effect on the number of spankos who get involved in the spanking fetishist community. For most of my adolescence, as I said, I really internalized the myth that my sexuality was just an eroticization of childhood trauma. So I thought it was bad. I thought it needed be fixed. And uh, I was really messed up about it. And it was only after I worked through all that baggage and found the confidence to embrace my fetish that I finally got involved in the spanking community. Mm -hmm. But the good news is young people these days are more and more not having to go through that. They don't have to work through the same baggage that I did. So while the overall number of people with spanking fetishes is not increasing, the number of happy, well-adjusted spanking fetishists who are comfortable getting involved in the public community is increasing. And uh, that's really cool. And what role do you think the internet plays in that? Because a lot of people who have kinks now can get online, uh, mostly Twitter, now that Tumblr is no more, RIP, uh, and find others who, who share their kinks pretty easily, pretty instantaneously, and then see people who have Twitter feeds or blogs who write very publicly like you do uh, about their kinks and have integrated their kinks into their uh, identities and uh, don't feel shame, that they can have modeled for them this self-acceptance and a kind of radical self-acceptance when it comes to kink because there's so much shame and stigma. Still, the culture attempts to attach so much shame and stigma to kink. Yeah. And I really think that plays a, a huge role. Like you see people go from – you know, ashamed of their kinks to suddenly having all of these role models, you know, digitally who are virtual online role models, many of whom, you know, are out there publicly with their names and faces on their Twitter profiles or whatever, who 
have embraced themselves and, and, and love themselves and love their kinks. And you can see all of the good things, the relationships, the connections, the meetups that their kink is bringing into their lives. And I think that's playing a huge role in the emergence of, you know, in the, in the way so many more people now can quickly embrace their kinks and find their way into a community where there's sort of this self-reinforcing uh, acceptance you know, I was struggling to accept myself. I met people who were way further along in that struggle than I was, and it encouraged me to move faster towards self-acceptance. And I really think online drives that. Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right, Dan. The internet is huge and transformative. I feel like I'm kind of right on the border between the generation of spanking fetishists who had to grow up without the internet and the generation of spanking fetishists who are growing up with the internet and the reassurance that provides. And so I can see the difference really clearly in self-confidence and internalized stigma and shame and all these things. So uh, the internet is just the greatest. <laughs> you know what I think one of the great things about it is, you know, the assumption used to be that, you know, and I still sometimes fall into the trap of talking about it this way, that kink was something you disclosed to a presumed to be vanilla partner. And maybe if they liked you enough, they would go there and you would find somebody who could do this, but you would always have this niggling sense in the back of your head that you were being indulged or tolerated. And now mm. you don't have those limitations when it comes to choice of partners. You can search the world for someone who is the lid to your kink pot and find them in a way that you didn't used to be able to do that. You just, you know, if you were kinky and you were dating and it was before the internet and you weren't a gay guy who could walk into a leather bar and even then that wasn't a perfect sorting mechanism, uh, you just had to, you know find somebody who loved you enough to to indulge you and then be indulged or be broken up with and it was scary and now the internet is this unless we're going to fuck it up you know they're attempting to drive sexual expression off the internet which is going to negatively yeah. impact a lot of people's journeys towards self-acceptance but you can get online and you can find people who are you are your people and i just think that's so wonderful we always talk about the problems online dating or the internet when it comes to pornography or sex so creates and we never take a moment to stand back or step back and appreciate the gifts it's given us oh absolutely it's a really beautiful and exciting time and i can't imagine that there was uh, ever a better time to find uh, a community around the world as a sexual minority the internet just makes that possible Hey, can you hang out for one more question? I just want to toss another one your way. Yeah, absolutely. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a married straight guy in my 30s. My wife and I opened up our marriage probably around three years ago or so, and it's uh, been a fantastic experience. Uh, we don't do anything separately, just kind of the occasional special guest star, and there's also been a few same-room couple swaps. But overall, it's been really fun and really healthy for us. I wouldn't say our marriage was in trouble before, but... There were some aspects that were getting a little shaky, and this new approach to our sex life has really helped us out. I, we've never been happier, so it's, it's been great. Uh, but my question is about power dynamics in a, in a group sex setting. So my wife uh, started a new job last year. Uh, on her first day, she found out that uh, one of her female coworkers basically lives next door to us. So they started carpooling together just to save on gas and do a little bit for the environment and, you know, one less car. But uh, anyway, they've, they've become pretty good friends uh, through this. And I guess my, my wife felt comfortable enough to reveal our open status to her, which is fine. Like, we don't go around broadcasting it necessarily, but it's something that we're not ashamed of either. So whatever. But it turns out that this other woman and her husband are also open and into partner swaps. So 
you know, some flirting commences, things kind of go back and forth. We all get to know each other a little bit. And long story short, we want to have sex together. Um, but the thing is, at, at work, uh, my wife technically outranks this other woman. Um, she's not her boss or direct report or anything, but my wife is one of the managers on the team that they're all on. And there, there's been scenarios in the past where she's had to kind of ask this other woman to um, contribute something or she's had to like kind of track her progress on certain projects that they work on and, and stuff like that. So it's a little bit weird. I'm just wondering if this is kind of, you know, above board from a power balance perspective. Um, we all agree that their jobs are super important. So we haven't moved forward with sex yet or anything. We don't want to jeopardize that uh, at all, but it's something both couples want and we're just kind of stuck. So um, I don't know. There's no gender imbalance either because they're both women. So I don't know. It's just like a weird gray area that we're kind of stuck in. And uh, just wondering what your thoughts are here. So they work together and live next door to each other. What could possibly go wrong if they start fucking? <laughs> well, I think some things could definitely go wrong for sure. Yeah, yeah, I do too. Um, and we focus on what goes wrong sometimes to the exclusion of what could possibly go right. You know, when something like this goes south and your wife and this woman next door work together, your wife is uh, in a position of more power at the company where they work. If this goes south, there's a lot of shit. There's a lot of ways that this could be very bad for you. Uh, you know, you don't, you just got to know these people. They live next door to you. How discreet are they? If there's a big bust up if it goes south are they gonna bitch to your other neighbors uh like there's a lot of ways that this could go wrong but you know there's some ways it could go right can we allow for the ways that this could go right i kind of feel like in the same way we talk about all the you know bad things that come from the internet revenge porn online stalking uh catfishing ghosting uh, and never step back to talk about the good like it's the same thing when we assess risk in any sort of like you know, slightly complicated hookup situation where we're like, oh, these are all the ways it could go wrong. And we hear about shit like this when it goes wrong. If this goes right, we're never going to hear about it. Yeah, you, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, to be honest with you, Dan, I think the fact that these couples are in open marriages is kind of irrelevant to the question of whether this could go wrong or right. Um, I think that these people would be struggling with these same questions if they were just wondering about dating a neighbor in a totally monogamous relationship, mm -hmm. dating a neighbor that they also happened to work with. Um, that could go really wrong or really right also. And I, I think the same is true here. They say, uh, don't shit where you eat. And this is like <laughs> shit where you eat squared because it's also yeah. shitting where you make the money to buy the food that you take home to the place where you eat. Uh, I would encourage the caller to maybe get to know this couple a little better, draw out the erotic tension. You've established you're both an open relationship and you've established there's interest. But maybe at this point, although your wife and her coworker became, have become fast friends carpooling, maybe at this point you don't know them well enough to, to, to take that guess on whether if it does go south, everyone's going to be an adult about that and no one's going to retaliate. And they don't know you guys well enough to know that about you either. So maybe give it another few months and if you still want to – Go for it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I like people to have the sex they want to have, uh, but going in with an accurate sort of read on the risk. And sometimes it helps in a situation like this if you guys game out the end. Like if we do this for a little bit and then we decide we want to stop and there's some hurt feelings, let's all pledge now while we're still like in the, you know, what's the 
a pleasure hormone firing stage, whatever those things are called. I'm totally it's like new about. relationship energy. Yeah, like we're in that new relationship energy and we only want the best for each other. Let's pledge now that if let's promise now that if it ends and if there's some hurt feelings, we're not gonna let that affect our relationship as neighbors or coworkers. It doesn't mean it won't or it can't, but I think it's less likely to if you've made a promise in advance where you've wrestled with what it could mean if it ends and ends badly and how you'll behave if it ends and there are hurt feelings, you're likelier to rise to that. You're likelier to, you know, lean into keeping that promise if you've made it during the oxytocin phase as opposed to the breakup phase. Yeah, I think that's really smart. Jillian Keenan, author of Sex with Shakespeare, book about spanking fetishism. She's the host of the YouTube series Kinking Out Loud, and she is one of the smartest people out there writing and talking about kink and other topics. You're a journalist. People should go to your website, read all of the terrific stuff you write, not just the kink stuff. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Hey, Dan. I am a 28-year-old female living in Los Angeles. I met a guy who is really great, really awesome, really liked him. He's 36 years old. We had a really good time um, together. We went on three dates. And after the third date, he called me a little bit distressed and told me, you know, that he had a four-year-old son and he wanted a chance to get to know, for me to get to know him before he brought up the whole kid thing because I am, you know, a few years younger than him. So a little background on me. As I mentioned, I'm 28 years old. I have been single for the last two years. Um, I came out of a four-year relationship and just, you know, really wanted to enjoy being single as an adult in Los Angeles. You know, I've been dating a lot, a lot, a lot in the last two years. And so having met this awesome guy, we clicked immediately. And, you know, before the whole kid thing, it was a no-brainer that, you know, I wanted to be exclusive with him and really wanted to explore a potential relationship. You know, the biggest question of my life is, should I get a dog right now, which I don't even think I'm ready for that. I have a plant. I guess this is always say that I'm not ready. I don't, I don't want to be this child's mother, but I don't think, I don't, I don't feel that I'm equipped. What are your thoughts on me dating this guy who has a kid who is divorced? The mom lives in the area also. You don't have to keep seeing this guy if you don't want to keep seeing this guy. And it's perfectly legitimate for you not to want to see him because you're not ready to be a bank shot step parent. You're not ready to be in that role. You don't want to bond with this kid. You don't think you are ready for the limited responsibilities of being the girlfriend of what sounds like the non-custodial parent of a small child. You can bail. You can walk away for those reasons. Or you can continue to see this guy. It's really up to you. I would, if I were you, share, if you're interested in this guy, if you really like this guy, you say you were thinking about hopefully this becoming something more serious, perhaps exclusive. If you really like him, I say give him a chance. Express your concerns and doubts to him. That you are not, you can barely take care of a plant. That a dog seems like too awesome a responsibility for you. Tell him that and then see what he says. Is he the custodial parent? Is this kid at his house a lot? What role in that child's life, in his child's life, is he hoping a future girlfriend might play? And when you get a clearer idea of his expectations, you'll have a better idea about whether or not you want to continue to pursue this relationship with him. It may be that 
This is just a fact about him that he felt that you should know, and he doesn't want any girlfriend that he might get to have any involvement with this child for a very long time because, you know, and I think that's the responsible thing to do when you're the parent of a small child and you're divorced. You don't sort of churn girlfriends and boyfriends through your child's life at a rapid clip. You really want to make sure that somebody that you're dating is going to be around for a long time before your child bonds with that person. So it may be that he has no expectation that in the first two years you would even meet this kid or spend any amount of time with this kid. When you express your reservations to him, you may find in the conversation that ensues yourself feeling more comfortable about continuing to at least date him. And then if it's two years down the road before you're going to get involved with this kid, maybe you'll be at a place in your life then where the responsibilities of a houseplant, a dog, and the minor parental responsibilities of a girlfriend of a dad is less intimidating. Hey, Dan, uh, question. How does one overcome shame and guilt from religious-induced shame and guilt from masturbation? I'm married in a heterosexual marriage, and, and it's even shaming from my spouse. Wondering about ways, I mean, other than just hiding it, and other than just being frank and open, that I'm not getting enough sex, and so does my urologist say that. Just curious what what one can do other than hide but the thing is i just have severe shame and guilt from from not only my wife but from religion and we're pretty much in a sexless marriage how does one overcome shame religious shame religious indoctrination and guilt pounded into your head by religious leaders by family by your spouse about your normal sexual behaviors your normal sexual desires one makes up one's mind to get the fuck over it. One reads, one learns more about human sexuality. One wraps one's head around the fact that sexual reproduction is 2 billion years old, which means it's a lot older than all world religions that have attempted to guilt and shame us uh, about sex in order to control us. Once one understands all this shit, one feels a lot less guilty about one's desires. You also have to understand when in human societies, in human culture, we are primates, we are social animals, we are hierarchical social animals, that sex isn't just about making babies. It's not just about that particular utility. Sex is also about pleasure. It's about intimacy. It's about social bonds. It's about connection. It's about release. It's about often for many humans, for many people, about processing and conquering and fears. That's why so many of our fantasies and kinks are rooted in it's kind of what would be if we experienced them in reality, worst case scenario disasters. You know, people fantasize about terrible things being done to them sexually, but in a consensual, controlled way so they can live out their fears with boners. All right, what do you do about the wife? You divorce the fucking wife, the wife who doesn't want to fuck you and also doesn't want you sneaking off to masturbate, to drain your sack, which is good for prostate health. You don't want to die early of prostate cancer because you had toxins rattling around in your nuts and prostate. You want to blow those loads on the regular. And if your wife doesn't want to fuck you, she doesn't get to tell you who you can fuck or whether you can jack off and you're just going to have to 
stand up for yourself. You're going to have to grow an extra pair to go with that pair that isn't being drained on the regular by the wife or you or anyone else and just assert yourself sexually. And you can do it. Assert your right to some control and agency and the legitimacy of your desires and needs. And if your wife isn't interested in meeting those needs and you've done your level best to make sure that it's not because you're being an asshole or you've alienated her affections in some way that you can make up for and and, and correct for, well, then you don't have to remain monogamous to someone who doesn't want to fuck you. You can be in a companionate marriage and you can have an ethically non-monogamous companionate marriage. You just have to go to her and say, obviously, our marriage is about List the positive things your marriage is about. Maybe you guys have kids and you're good parents, good partners. Maybe you're an economic engine together and you're good at that. This is what our marriage is about. Our marriage is obviously not about sex and a sexual connection. So I am released from the sexual commitments I made to you earlier in the relationship or when we got married and you are released from the sexual commitments you made to me. I Sex, including masturbation, is now a zone of privacy and autonomy. And you don't get to tell me what masturbation or who somebody else I can do. And if she doesn't like it, she can leave you. She can do you that fucking favor. I would encourage you, if you don't have some gay friends, to get out there and make some gay friends. You will meet people who aren't just masturbating about the normal heterosexual sex that the religious tradition in which they were raised instructed them to have or told them was the only good and decent kind of sex a good and decent person would want to have. They're putting dicks in their butts. And most of them, the vast and overwhelming majority of them, are over it. They have processed and walked away from the shame. And usually with gay people, it's because we recognize that sex is primarily for pleasure and intimacy and connection, whether that connection lasts a couple of hours or whether that connection lasts a few decades. That's what sex is for. We are wired and programmed to desire and to want and to have a lot of sex, but there are physical limitations to the numbers of children we can have. Look at desire, look at sex, look at all those eggs being popped out monthly, look at all those millions of sperms being blown out daily, multiple times a day, and ask yourself whether your religious tradition, which was making shit up long after sex, billions of years after sex came along, got it right or got it wrong. And the only reasonable, logical, sensible answer is religion got it wrong didn't understand what sex was or what it was for and was just trying to grab people by the sacks and grab people by the ovaries and control them. Just like your wife is trying to grab you by your sack and control you. You don't have to be controlled by that bullshit religious tradition in which you were raised anymore and you don't have to remain married to someone who doesn't want to fuck you and also doesn't want you taking long showers in the morning before work anymore either. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. At Coding Sweet Tea tweets, holy shit, did Rush Limbaugh's daughter really call into the Savage Lovecast for advice? That's amazing that she's a listener. And big props to at fake Dan Savage for not reacting, at least on mic, to hearing from Limbaugh's daughter. Going on, Stone Cold Jane Austen at Magzilla to early tweets. Oh my God, I'm almost 100% certain that Rush Limbaugh's daughter called at fake Dan Savage to ask how to reconcile with her dying dad. I felt bad for her. There's no good solution to this. 
I'm just going to keep reading the tweets because eventually this mystery gets solved. At the Bitter Guy tweets, there was a Savage Lovecast call today that made me check Rush Limbaugh's Wikipedia entry. And what do you find when you check Rush Limbaugh's Wikipedia entry? Well, at Casey O'Donnell is on it. Hey, Dan Savage, please let the Savage Lovecast folks know that it was not Rush's daughter that called in. He has no kids. From Wiki, Limbaugh has had four marriages, three divorces, and no children. Important to remember, Rush Limbaugh isn't the only sexist, racist, homophobic, transphobic, anti-immigrant, right-wing talker out there. There are many of them, and apparently more than one of them at a time can be facing cancer. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, please be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hi, this is for the caller on episode 693 about how he wants closure from the girlfriend that doesn't want to hear from him. As a woman in this position, I was so mad. Are you kidding me? Like, she doesn't want to hear from you. You broke her heart. She doesn't owe you anything. She is not her responsibility to make you feel better about why you broke up with her. You are still only thinking about yourself. She wants to move on. She wants to heal. Your healing process is your responsibility, just like you made her healing her responsibility. It's time to give it up. If you cared about her, you will let it go and figure out a way to move on on your own, just like she did. Hi, I'm calling in response to the first caller on the uh, latest podcast about um, having kink on her dating profile. I've had the exact same issue. So I taught, I took kink off of my profile and so it will still respond to match up with men who have kink in their profile. And they still do the same thing. They just clobber you with these like really provocative, wanting to know details. And I really love Dan's advice about having a standard response. I'm going to use that myself. And I also wanted to implore the men out there, if you get matched with kinky ladies or ladies who are open to kink, don't squish us on the first upfront. If we say give it a rest, then listen, please. Hey, Dan, I'm calling in response to the woman in episode 693 who's trying to find a nice guy who's into kink, but she keeps getting besieged by idiots in her online dating attempts who just absolutely have no clue. You said she should give them a second chance, let them prove that they're not so clueless. I think you missed the mark. I mean, just no, no. There are enough dudes out there who are really freaky, but also really awesome from the start. And she should hold out for one of those guys. All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at Savage Lovecast. If you want to call, record a question or a comment, 206-302-2064. Or better yet, better than calling that number, record your question or comment on your phone using the Voice Memo app and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Please, if you can, keep your call to under three minutes. Be sure to listen to Blabbermouth, the Stranger's Week in Review podcast hosted by Eli Sanders out every Wednesday. I'm on most weeks. Please join us for Blabbermouth. Hump, my dirty little film festival, is out on the road, heading soon to Miami, L.A., Oakland, Long Beach, and Palm Springs all this month. Go over to humpfilmfest.com for more information, to get tickets, and to find out when Hump is coming to a city near you. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Jillian Keenan on Twitter at Jillian Keenan. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.